You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. This episode is the Asian Century Part 2. I am joined today by uh, Parakana and James Crabtree. Parakana is the founder and the managing partner of Future Map. James Crabtree is an associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. And as uh, some of you might recall, the three of us had a very engaged and interesting conversation about a year ago. And uh, back then we were quite upbeat, positive about the growth and the ongoing technology revolution. Yes, there were challenges facing, but boy, what a difference a year makes. Gentlemen, let me just warm us up. We are in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Let me just hear from you. How has that affected you personally? Any interesting episodes, any positive learnings throughout this year so far? Parag. Well, I don't know if we're in the middle or the end. Optimistically, you've said we're in the middle. That would be a great thing if it were if it were true. Let's hope so. I think the three of us have been lucky to physically be, I guess, here in Singapore, which you know started out in difficult conditions in terms of the untraced cases. You know, having so many Chinese visitors and so forth, but it's it's gotten it under control. So you know, not traveling is obviously weird for all three of us, I'm sure. But if you're going to be stuck anywhere, this has been as fine a place to be as one can imagine in the world. And the shift to remote, you know, I think perhaps speaking for all three of us has been uh, actually a real productivity boost. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I've been learning Mandarin, albeit in a very cursory way, so that I can try and keep up with my six-year-old son. I've also been learning to teach virtually. That's been interesting. So I teach at the Lee Kuan Yew School. And so a lot of our teaching this year has been virtual. And so what initially looked like it was going to be a big pain learning how to do something, it actually has been a lot of fun, learned a lot of new techniques. But I agree with Parag that I felt very lucky to be in Singapore. I've looked at my, you know, my friends in London or on the American East Coast where the schools are still shut. And, you know, you've learned a lot in this pandemic about the importance of being somewhere, living somewhere where you have high state capacity and the, the ability to deal with something this complicated. And so you see that across East Asia and Singapore after a little hiccup at the beginning has been one of the places along with Taiwan and others that have really dealt very well with this pandemic. And I think a, that has made our lives much easier. And that has meant that those of us who are lucky enough to live lives where you, you know, if you're sitting in your office with access to a webcam and you can write and you can call people, then you can be as productive as you used to be. So I've, I've had a pretty productive year, I think. Productive, yes. But has it been as fun? It hasn't been as fun because, I mean, I think both Parag and I, we live to travel. And so there's a lot that you can get done by doing webinars and having meetings. And, and that has actually been eye-opening in a sense how interesting that can be. I, I'm not a, a webinar doom-monger. I, I, I like them actually now. and I, I've But there's nothing really that beats going to, you know, I'm itching to go back to China, itching to go to Central Asia. I'd like to go back to India. You know, you just, you, you gradually lose contact with people and ideas if you can't go visit. I'll just have to push back. You know, it's, it's, it's one year of deferred plans, right? So the next few years will just be that much more intense. But I'm obviously savoring that, looking forward to it. But obviously, you know, having your feet on the ground. But at the same time, that's the smallest of sacrifices given uh, what's been happening in the world right now. And uh, I think the expectations, the needs, the demands, the mentalities in a lot of places that we go back to when we do go are going to be quite different. I think that only every now and then in the midst of the daily updates about COVID mortality and infection rates, do we stop to really assess just how different things will be uh, afterwards. So it's going to be in some ways a new world that we go back to other than maybe China, you know, which is going to carry on being what it was in many ways. So let's come back to that. Let's start zooming in first on COVID. One of my colleagues, uh, Chris Bradley, he's, he likens our situation to being we're in a long, dark tunnel. The problem is we don't know how long that tunnel is. And frankly, we don't know what, hap what is on the other side of the tunnel when we get out of it. So let's double click on that. How is COVID affecting us? Any sense on how long that tunnel is going to be? You know, a couple of thoughts around what is on the other side of that tunnel. Without wanting to big up McKinsey too much, you just put out a very useful piece of work looking at, at the scenarios for uh, the vaccine. And so that went in on two 
axes. So how effective will the vaccine be and what will the coverage be? And that's what's driving this. And so we've got some very good news on effectiveness. The fact that you have two of the, you know, two dozen candidate vaccines that are above 90%, that's far in excess of what people were predicting three or four months ago. It's unclear whether that will be repeated in the Oxford, AstraZeneca and other ones, but that's very optimistic. Insofar as we've got data, that data has been very good. And so that means I think that we can be more optimistic even potentially than certainly optimistic to the degree of the best of the four scenarios that your analysis had. The question of coverage is much more complicated because even in the US, you have the question of how many people will actually take these things. So there's a cultural dimension. And then there's the huge logistical challenge, particularly in countries like India. And we have to remember that this thing ain't over until it's over everywhere. You know, you can't reopen borders properly until everybody's been vaccinated. So it's not just a case of being able to do it in the rich countries. And then, you know, we're all back to normal. But I think given where we were six months ago, I don't know if Parag would agree, there's actually reasonable cause for optimism that by the middle of next year, we'll have this thing under control. I agree in theory, but in practice, you know, the world was fragmenting in many ways prior to this pandemic. And we know what how, how much inequality there will be in the deployment of the vaccine. And indeed, you know, those countries that do get it first, that have large internal markets, their life will resume in many ways. You imagine a place like a Japan, Germany, kind of becoming like what China is, right? And they will not close their borders, but they will have these kinds of checkpoints and so forth and immunity passports. And the parts of the world, specifically, you know, what we used to call the global south, right? Africa, Latin America, that are going to get the vaccine last, they can get frozen out. So it, as much as it's more Morally true when you say, you know, it's not over until everyone has it. Functionally speaking, we're moving. It's a multi-speed world. It's been a multi-speed world for a while, and now it's going to be even more a multi-speed world. There's going to be an American path and a European path, and within Asia, multiple different paths. Uh, you know, China, Northeast Asia versus South Asia. Again, very different economic paths. And so the, the governance gaps, the economic gaps are going to be, it's going to be a very bumpy and great gradient kind of world. Yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting. I wrote something right at the beginning of the pandemic predicting that what would happen is you'd see a new layer of fracturing on top of this sort of fractured globalization, which is a sort of an epidemiological layer in which you'd have the world basically divided into green, yellow and red zones. And actually, that's happened quite slowly in this stage of the pandemic, by which I mean we're in Singapore, we basically can't leave. If you're in Taiwan, you can't leave. As we are recording this, the Singapore-Hong Kong travel bubble just got cancelled. And so it has proved, even in Asia, the area that has, or particularly in Asia, the area that's dealt with this best, it's proved very, very difficult to do travel reopening in Europe, they tried it and it had a bad effect. In America, they never really tried anything and it had a bad effect. So I think one of I think Prague is completely right that actually what may happen by the middle of next summer is that actually now you will get the fracturing of the world into the green, the yellow, and the red zones in a much more delineated way, and that that will be the kind of the the beginnings of the world that we live in for the next few years, where the the, the good countries, either the rich ones or the ones that have managed to bring it under control, or both, will open up to one another, and then it'll be much more complicated elsewhere. Well, one other layer that's going to be very interesting is not just segmenting or segregating based on nationality and geography, but the individual level, right? Because we're seeing people pick up and change their location in order to be in a place that is a green zone and then to be affiliated with that place and to have the vaccine or the immunity passport enables you to have the kind of access that perhaps you're actual nationality would not afford. So I think there's another layer of fragmentation above the two layers that we've just been talking about, right down to the individual level. And I guess also what you're describing is just the the, the sheer unpredictability of this, right? We do not know what's going to happen when. And I think we're all positively surprised that there is a vaccine that is coming soon, because I mean, this vaccine has been developed in record time. Normally it takes many years, but now at least there is one. And then now it's a question around distribution of that. Let's shift a little bit and talk about some of the effects on economies of COVID-19. How do you see the world now evolving in the next few years? Well, it's hard, again, to speak of a integrated you know, world economy. Yes, we're interconnected, that we know, but we're, again, clearly going to be in a multi-speed environment. And those places that are recovering on the back of actual growth, consumption, investment, and so on, the way China is, the way Japan is trying to do, and other East Asian countries. And I'll just make a, a side point, which we'll probably come back to, and that is this notion of sort of Sino-dependency, right? Because we tend to criticize the notion that if a country has been overly dependent in terms of exports to China, that's a sign of frailty. 
but at this point in time, it's something of an asset in terms of recovery for a number of these countries. So whereas in Europe and in the US, where you've had just enormous combination of extraordinary monetary and fiscal measures and stimulus, that is whether or not that can genuinely fuel a recovery remains to be seen, especially as you have policy changes in the US environment. So very unclear what the economic growth path is going to be and what shape it's going to take, what alphabet letter you want to name that recovery after. And we don't have, we didn't have consensus about it six months ago and we don't have it now. And I think it would be very presumptuous to know for sure. But we know that it's going to be artificial for quite some time in the Western economies. And what alphabet letter is it? Is K still the, the last letter that we are on? I would say in terms of the two-track recovery, no question. Yes, it's going to be some variant of a K, let's put it that way. But that's, again, depending on which part of the world you're talking about. So if we're talking about Western economies, K is the shape, but the, the top right slant of the K is going to be also very flat. It's hardly going to be some kind of a, a stratospheric liftoff. I mean, I think if we cast our eyes back, the kind of COVID record, the economic record is very contradictory because on the one hand, it's devastating. This is a worse, far worse than the global financial crisis in its reach and its scale. I mean, you saw a country like India, its economy contracted by a quarter, 25% down, similar in other areas, devastating for emerging economies. On the other hand, if you went back to when we had our last conversation or you in February, March, and you thought, well, how bad might this be? Actually, the world economy hasn't done as badly as you might have thought. There hasn't been a rolling financial crisis. Uh, there has been a reasonably rapid bounce back once the core lockdowns have been over. You have had the extraordinary monetary and fiscal intervention, particularly on the monetary side. And so, yeah, how does it go from here? I think Parag's right that that people talk about there being no tension between the, the lives and livelihood side of COVID. And, and in many ways, that's not true. But in the big picture economic sense, it is true that the countries that have managed the pandemic best are coming out of this most strongly. So China is the most obvious, Taiwan also, but countries in, in East Asia, and to some degree, parts of Europe, like Germany, even somewhere like Greece, that has had a kind of reasonable pandemic record are going to come out of this much more strongly. But as Parag said, the kind of the broader picture is that a large portion of the world has not been able to cope with this and is just staggering towards a vaccine. It's only going to be China and in a select few other countries that, that are going to be able to kind of get back to normal business until this vaccine arrives. So let's uh, let's zoom in a little bit uh, and, and talk about some of the respective countries, regions in Asia and the, the growth outlook. You know, what is your view? Let's spend a couple of minutes on India and ASEAN, Australia and so forth. Uh, Parak. So I'll go back to the so Sino-dependency point, because when you bring in the intra-regional trade momentum and just the mobility of people and invest, fluidity of investment that was uh, sort of, you know, getting strongly anchored in the region over the last decade since the financial crisis, and now you bring in the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, and the, I guess, the some degree of, it's, it's episodic, it's haphazard and it's a learning process, but the coordination around how to bring in these travel bubbles and so forth. And, and no doubt there is going to be within Asia, you know, vaccine production and, and, and sort of sharing of those practices and technologies, that kind of thing. I think overall, the outlook for the set of countries in that RCEP world is fairly positive and their impact on each other. And, and it's not going to be the first time. If you look back to the Asian crisis of 98, the financial crisis of 2008, and now in each step of the way, you see countries learning that they have to become each other's consumer of last resort, you know, bring down some of these barriers uh, that are inhibiting them from supporting each other economically and exploiting each other complementarities more. So this is going to be the third episode in in less than 30 years where Asian countries internalize that lesson and act on it quickly. And so we see that the fact that RCEP has been legislated or, you know, signed in the midst of this pandemic, I think is, uh, again, we can debate how much of RCEP is uh, just sort of, you know, symbolic, how what the, the sort of quantum, you know, the magnitude of impact is going to be that we can debate, but to have gotten it done now is is more than just symbolic. So let's, let's just double click on RCEP. You mentioned it a couple of times. James, can you just, what is RCEP and is it going to be impactful? So RCEP is a new trade agreement struck between ASEAN, the nations of Southeast Asia, and uh, a handful of other countries, including China, Japan, and South Korea. And so many of these countries had trade agreements with one another. So ASEAN had one with Japan, ASEAN had one with China, but they didn't have one that linked all of them together. And so 
painfully and slowly over the last decade they've been sitting in a not a smoke-filled room but in a in a kind of secret room hashing this trade deal out and they they finally signed the agreement so on the one hand it's what they call a shallow trade deal. So it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of the other big regional trade agreement, which is now called the CPTPP. So for instance, it doesn't have gold standard protection for labor, intellectual property and things like that. But it's nonetheless a, a, a significant trade agreement in a number of different respects that we, we can dig into. The most obvious of which is just that in the era, the post-Trump, but nonetheless the kind of the Trump era in which we've all been talking about deglobalization, the fact that you have in Asia, had the signing over the last immediate period of these two gigantic mega regional trade deals shows that there's life yet in a more integrated vision of the global economy and Asia is in the lead. It's, you know, these are now the two big trading pieces of infrastructure that will form the basis of the next economic geography of the rest of the world. Because you can already see, for instance, the United Kingdom wants to join the CPTPP. They will might enlarge RCEP. These are now going to be the building blocks of the world's new economic geography because Asia's at its heart. And, and you also mentioned the C CPTPP. Can you just give the two-minute version of what is that? And I heard you saying the UK wants to join. So wh why? The CPTPP was, going back to the Obama years, the centerpiece of what now seems like a bit of ancient history, which was a moment when the US was the sole superpower and was trying to work out how to kind of consolidate its grip around the world. And so it set up this uh, trans-Pacific partnership, negotiating with a dozen or so countries around the Pacific. So most of them in Asia, but a couple in Latin America as well. Then the US flounced out of its own agreement. So Trump um, emerged, he won, and then on day one or day Day two of his administration, he said, we're not doing this anymore. It's not a good deal for us. And so for a while, it looked like it was going to collapse until the Japanese under Abe came along working with other pro-trade nations like Singapore, Australia, New Zealand and said, well, hang on, we can do this without the Americans. And so after some you know, jiggery-pokery. They also came up with this agreement. And now, so it's different from RCEP. It's much more, as I say, your gold standard 21st century trade agreement with all of the bells and whistles. It's deep. It requires no tariffs. So it's more economically significant, but it doesn't have China in it. So it's a non-China trade agreement. The UK, in the aftermath of Brexit, having voluntarily and unwisely removed itself from the world's largest trading bloc, is now looking around desperately for alternatives. And so it wants to reinvent itself as a Pacific nation. And so I think the UK will probably probably join. There are also a bunch of other countries that haven't joined, which probably will. Korea is the most obvious candidate. Taiwan, if you can square the politics, which is really difficult. Some of the countries in Latin America, which have not yet joined, could join. And yeah, so you, you now have these, these two agreements, the CPTPP and RCEP. If you look at the numbers, this isn't a revolution in terms of the amount of extra trade, but simply in an environment in which so many of these global institutions have been degrading the WTOs on its knees. Simply the fact that you have this kind of cooperation, you have these deals being signed is a very positive uh, step. Well, let's remember that we also have simultaneous investment liberalization occurring. And a trade agreement is not just a trade agreement anymore. It's an investment agreement. And that's also part of the liberalization that's happening. And, you know, I always remind people that trade is billions and finance is trillions. So when we think about these in the long-term context, what is happening is certainly what James has said, a commitment to continued openness in terms of globalization of trade and, again, finance and capital markets. And it's a sign of the kinds of reforms that governments, that societies, economies that have a lot of potential are going to make that have not yet been made. So the unlocking of value is actually trade, as I think James has rightly pointed out, is not the full story. That's part of what will happen in terms of the numbers. But the unlocking of value in terms of how fresh capital will enter certain underdeveloped countries and, and spur their modernization, that's going to wind up being the big story. And we can will partially attribute it to uh, these trade agreements. But more broadly, it's also a copycat effect that's happening within Asia. And I think one of the most obvious examples is China's capital account liberalization that's occurring right now. Now, we have decades of experience with Japan and Korean equities being part of global industry and so forth, and, and our Western retirement funds being allocated to, you know, having some component of those countries' equities and companies there, but now China will as well. And what 
Japan and South Korea and China do is also what this entire next wave of Asian economies is going to do and want to do. So India, Indonesia, and others, they're going to want to improve their corporate governance, draw in that capital, privatize uh, assets and companies and so forth. So that I think is is what we should be looking forward to, ideally. And again, I we have a couple of decades worth of experience with the with Asian countries learning on a faster cycle what are the pragmatic policies to implement and and you know as we whether we're not so much traveling around this year but zooming around and talking to you know regulators and policymakers that's clearly what they have in mind and what they're going to do and that's that's a good thing so one of the things you asked Oliver was what has been the big picture economic effect of covid around asia and if i were to say it super simply it's east asia has done very well southeast asia has done quite well and south asia has done badly and so one of the other significant things about rcep is it, it there's going to be this greater divide in the future between the different portions of asia with east asia doing best southeast asia doing reasonably well very well in parts less well in others and south asia struggling particularly india and pakistan they've been polaxed by the the pandemic and and in a sense are going to suffer something akin to a, a lost decade or at least they could without very significant reforms and that that's another reason why RCEP is significant, because it sort of shows where's the dynamism and energy in Asia. It, it's in this this East Asian, Southeast Asian nexus. And so part of that plays into what Parag was talking about, which is the kind of Sino-dependency that these, or if not Sino-dependency, then, then sort of Sino-linked areas, that these are the parts of Asia that are more closely geographically, culturally, economically kind of wired into the China system that is emerging. But it also suggests that there's just more political interplay used to be that a lot of this stuff, not that long ago, a decade ago, if you wanted to talk about this stuff, you, you, you were in Asia, you went to Washington, and then you came back to Asia again. And now Washington's not even in the picture. You know, this is happening bilaterally. It's being driven, you know, by the Singaporeans, by the Australians, by the Japanese. You know, th there's a sort of new configuration of influence where the Old West, you know, I'm British, we all studied in America, the Old West is playing a much smaller part in this than, than it used to. And that, again, is a story that's been unfolding, you know, under the radar, right behind the scenes for, for quite a long time, because the Asians' concern about the commitment that U.S. administrations have to genuine free trade goes back, you know, quite a ways. And obviously, there are concerns that they don't want to be caught as pawns in the middle of a new Cold War also plays a role in all of this. And, but one important thing is that, uh, yes, so the Sino-Link, Sino-Dependency is important, but the Southeast Asian countries that have joined both RCEP and CPTPP are an important reminder that this is not just regionalism in the sense of, you know, sort of giant walled garden. It's what we call open regionalism in terms of their economic policies. So let's remember that they are bringing in lots more European foreign investment as well as American foreign investment. So the Southeast Asian countries fall in this space in the Venn diagram in which they're, you know, party to all possible trade agreements. And that's why they're genuinely becoming not just another factory floor for Asia, but for the world. And so that's important to remember. This is open regionalism. It's not exclusive or closed regionalism. And so I think Asia, therefore, in the future is going to have multiple drivers as much as, you know, we've come to see China as being in the driver's seat. It's, and, and one final thing before you move on. In, so not to praise Prague's most recent book, The Future is Asian, but, but the, main, the main, message of, <laughs> the main, like. the main <laughs> message of that book is that when you look at Asia, don't just look at China. And it's very tempting at the moment, given the news flow between the US and China, to see this, the world that is emerging as being about a battle between the US and China. And in a security sense, it is. These are the two superpowers. But actually, much of what's interesting in Asia is not simply about China, but about China's interaction with the region and in the absence of America. And so if you look at the economic piece through the lens of the geopolitical competition, you're missing a lot of what's interesting about the way that the kind of Asian economic system is developing. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you. Now, 
What changes in a Biden with a Biden administration? Is that going to alter the conversation that we just had here? Uh, maybe more in style than in substance. It remains to be seen. Obviously, we can only speculate, but I think that this is a question that's best answered by looking, you know, functionally at each vertical of U.S. engagement with Asia. We know that the reason that the Obama administration wasn't able to get TPP passed in the waning years and months of his administration was because of his own Democratic Party and their concerns about free trade and, and their sort of protectionist uh, tendencies. And so that hasn't changed. It's only been amplified, obviously. So Biden faces that. So the notion that just because Biden favors and Democrats favor multilateralism, that the U.S. is going to come back to the table and want to join TBB, well, that's a lot easier. That's much easier said than done. On the security side, there is a greater weariness, right, of military entanglements, especially given the frailty of the economy economy and how divided the polity is in the U.S. and a lot of caution, conservatism in the military ranks itself. So as much as the Trump administration is using, you know, its final weeks to rankle and stoke a little bit in terms of bilateral relations with China, you know, again, what is baked into the U.S. geopolitical outlook today is more or less diehard cynicism about China, right? And a willingness and a desire to find various ways, but probably short of direct military confrontation, right? To try to, again, not contain, but to constrain China. And will they succeed at that? Yes. But, and again, this is, it's very important to look at a lot of these issues from the inside out rather than the outside in. It didn't require the Trump administration for countries on China's periphery to be suspicious of China, Right. I mean, I've been looking at countries suspicious of China and writing about it for about almost 20 years at this point. So the fact that the U.S. is coming on board more strongly and supporting those countries, and it's certainly not just the U.S., right? It's Europe, it's Japan, uh, India and others. So will there be a continuation of various kinds of overlapping coalitions to empower countries to mitigate China's influence on their politics and economies? Yes. And, and that's, uh, that's something that the U.S. will continue to participate in and support. I think in this part of the world, so we're sat in Singapore, there's a danger of misunderstanding what's going on in Washington. And so, yes, so as Parag said, people here immediately start asking, is America going to rejoin the TPP and, and these kind of things? But like, that isn't, it's not on the top five Biden priority. It's not on the top 10. It's probably not on the top 20. I mean, Biden's been pretty clear, actually, right from the beginning, what his priorities are. And they are COVID at home, getting the economy back on track climate and racial justice. And so even China doesn't make that top list. China would probably sneak in at number five, maybe. But something like getting America back into the TPP, which my instinct is the US are going to, that administration is going to realize that they do need to do that. But then they have an incredibly difficult question on the how is way, way down the list. And you've just got to kind of conjure with how complicated the inheritance Biden has. He is the most experienced foreign policy president to arrive, certainly since the first Bush and maybe even before that. I mean, yeah, but that, that's both a good thing because he has relationships, but also potentially a bad thing because it means, you know, he, he cares a lot about Russia, cares a lot about the Middle East, got a lot of priorities. And so the notion that he is going to focus like a laser beam only on Asia and the kind of competition with China, given everything that's going on at home, doesn't seem very realistic to me. And so I think it, it's going to be a real question over the next sort of three to six months. Who does he put in which positions and how effective are they at crafting an agenda? On the military side, I'm less worried. I mean, I think the U.S. It has the world's best military. They have a very clear security agenda in this part of the world about building partnerships. The question is more on the stuff that, that Parag writes about, the geoeconomic piece, because the U.S. has nothing to say at the moment in Asia in a substantive sense to the region's economic aspirations. And so that's the real issue. What is America's economic engagement with Asia? And that come, brings you back to TPP, which is why I think eventually the U.S. is going to decide under Biden that it should get back in. I don't know if it will be able to, to make the politics work. But then what else can the US do on things that Asia cares about to begin to build that coalition, reestablish its leadership? So on COVID recovery, on the regulation of emerging industries like AI, electric vehicles, also climate, which we'll turn to in a minute, what can the US do given its abysmal record on climate leadership over the last four years? A whole range of incredibly complicated issues, which are just going to be a huge test of American statecraft in a situation in which 
its president has an awful lot of domestic priorities. And so I think you can see an environment in which actually Biden has a fantastic agenda and is able to do this. The question is, does he and now does the creaky Washington machine, can it do this anymore? And I think that's really an open question. Absent to the U.S. rejoining TPP, you'll have more of the same, which is to say that corporate America will continue substantial offshoring and, and, and overseas investment, particularly into South and Southeast Asia. The U.S. US companies invest you know, more in Southeast Asia than they do in Japan and in Korea and even China at this point. So that's in terms of another sword, so to speak. I mean, but it's not a sword that's wielded by Washington, right? It's It's corporate America responding to the fact that Washington has not joined TPP that actually forces them in some ways to offshore even further. So I think that's a critical element. And But there, they're, they're joining a choir. They're competing alongside others. They're not setting the tone, whether it's American technology companies or industrial companies, automotive companies that have expanded their presence and their factories in China itself, Indonesia, elsewhere, electronics manufacturing, diversifying from China the way Apple has done into India and in in bits in Vietnam. This is what every major industrial country's main firms are doing. This is what German companies are doing. It's what Canadian companies are doing and Americans are doing that too. So it's not a sign of leadership in any way, right? It's just going with the flow of where global supply chains and investment and, you know, low cost labor and market access are going. But it's not setting standards because as James knows very well, every Asian country has its own AI framework, data localization framework. They don't need anyone from anywhere else in the world at this point to tell them, you know, or to the to the extent that they do, they're looking at Europe's GDPR, right, as an example of a potential template for some of their their countries. But they really aren't going to be listening. They're not going to be taking cues. They may just be absorbing lessons from some places. I, I slightly disagree with that in the sense that there are so many problems out there that are not being shaped by global leadership that actually I think there is a big opportunity for any power that can manage it, not necessarily, I'm not suggesting that the region is sitting there desperate for the US to come back in and will get down on bended knee, that that for sure isn't going to happen. And I think a big question is whether Washington now recognizes how far everyone has moved on. But if you take something like, I mean, I think AI regulation is a good one, a lot of the emerging tech, battery standards, uh, vehicle standards, A, it's hard if you're, if you're, Singapore or if you're in New Zealand, you just can't do this on your own. You've seen this in the pandemic that you've got these these little configurations of countries that have come together to try and do this on their own. And, and they've had some success, but it's really difficult. You need the big guys to come in and do this. And so in an environment in which Biden can rebuild the transatlantic bridge with Europe and get Europe and the US working together again, which I think is pretty plausible. I mean, if he can't do that, then he certainly can't do Asia because, you know, the Germans want the US back. You know, so there's, I, I think there's quite a gap at the moment in this global standard setting framework creating space and that people are a bit wary of China playing that role. And so if the US can get its act together, there is there is a kind of open goal there. The question is, can it get its act together? So, you know, there's no question that there are opportunities and gaps, right? The question is, will they be filled? And if so, by whom? Because gaps can be left, market failures can be left unfilled for decades on end. In a way, that's how China entered the global infrastructure finance space with what is now known as Belt and Road. We had a market failure in global infrastructure finance for about 50 plus years without it being filled. And then China came in and then it started to look like a geopolitical threat. And, and therefore that awakened the West to start to come back and try and play in that game. And then it becomes about standards, right? So now we have a very interesting, lively, vibrant debate around standards for infrastructure, around debt sustainability, and also the environmental footprint of projects and making sure that finance is done in sort of concessionary terms and so forth. And that, in a way, is how geopolitics maybe reinforces or creates a positive arms race around global governance standards. And that, that if we saw something like that happen in other areas around data privacy and so forth, that would be a really good thing. And I think that's happening, but we don't, it's not 
so clearly articulated out of national capitals. It's more happening in, in with companies. Like you mentioned EVs. I mean, if Tesla now has its largest Asian footprint in China and has abandoned Panasonic for cattle batteries, that's going to be the standard. It doesn't require any industry consortium in Detroit to determine what a future battery standard is going to be. There's going to be a competitive marketplace for quite some time. But the moving or the first movers are underway in Europe, in the US and in Asia at the same time doing their own thing. So, you know, I'd, I'd, we would love to have a world and we've wanted this in trade. We've wanted it in investment regulation. We've wanted it in all areas, even human rights and so forth, to have some kind of common standards. But let's face it, you know, we don't. We have, we have competition. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think Parag's right to be skeptical. I think we agree that there's an opportunity and whether it's going to be taken, I don't know. If it isn't taken, then what you're going to see in this part of the world is a, is a kind of joining together of the economic and the security kind of setup, by which I mean the, the China skeptic nations, particularly the core four who are known sometimes as the Quad, the US, Japan, Australia, they are going to work together more carefully and they'll try and add an economic component onto their security component. But that in a sense is a very suboptimal outcome for the US because it makes dealing with Southeast Asia in particular much more difficult. It would be much better from everyone's point of view if you don't have the kind of economic part of this picture divided by the the china geopolitics Although you see the winners emerging with the... So this is happening in the form of the Resilient Supply Chain Initiative, which is basically an economic subsidiary of the Quad, right? You know, India, as James said, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. And they're, they've clearly designated sectors like pharmaceuticals, auto parts, critical technologies in the IT space, 5G, and so forth, to, to try to draw those supply chains into allied countries. The, the Brits call it the D10, right? So whether it's Resilient Supply Chain Initiative or D10, in the U.S., it's the clean, the clean, um, clean network. Clean network, right? Again, we have this proliferating set of competitive initiatives to make sure to diversify the geography of supply chains. But very little of that ultimately is going to be nearshoring, right? In terms of you know, countries will make in their own borders that which is sold and consumed in their own borders. We're starting to see Apple and other companies in the automotive and whatever spaces sort of do that in both North America and Europe. And the post-COVID stimulus very much encourages that, but. But in terms of for the for global markets and for Asia, there's going to be a lot of this shift going on. So there already is, a, again, a sort of very active economic or geoeconomic component to the geopolitical quad. And I encourage all of this. I think it's great because it really benefits these modernizing countries that want to improve their standards and become investment grade economies and take advantage of the cost structure that they have right now. And it will genuinely accelerate modernization. Were it not for COVID, let's remember the incredible path that Southeast Asia in particular was on India too. One thing I'd add to that, which is, so that there is a risk. So this thing, the Quad, which started out as a as a sort of China skeptic group, particularly with a focus on military of a sort, people have great dreams that this can become at the top end an Asian version of NATO. And people talk about a Quad for infrastructure, a Quad for this, a Quad for that. And I suspect most of these are going to be very, very difficult to deliver. You have a sense around Asia that form follows function. You know, you've got to set up these groups of countries around something that they all want to do together. And the notion that the Quad is going to somehow become a rival to China's Belt and Road Initiative seems kind of preposterous to me, really, because only one of the countries in the Quad has any money to spend on infrastructure, which is Japan. And so they don't add a huge amount of value to one another. They're pretty good as a military grouping. But so I think it's going to end up being much more complicated. We've talked already about fragmented economic globalization. We're going to see a pr proliferation of experiments in kind of Asian multilateral governance in which, so for instance, in the pandemic, you saw New Zealand and Singapore, and I think it was Peru or Chile coming together to, to, to try and come up with different standards around pandemics and vaccines. And I think you'll see a lot of that. So you'll see the quad, you'll see the quad plus, maybe the quad plus some of the ASEAN countries, Korea, some of the European countries, as Parag said, the British notion of the D10, the global kind of group of advanced democracies, which people tend to poo-poo, but that actually is going to be a big Biden priority. It's one of the few things that he has articulated that he will have a big conference of democracies. That is very problematic in all sorts of ways. But still, when Washington puts its shoulder to a particular wheel, it might get a little bit of traction. And so you're just going to see a lot of 
already the way that Asia is governed is this very confusing mishmash of kind of stuff that half works and half doesn't, the APEC, the Asia, East Asia Summit, the, all of these things that most people can't get their head around and we probably can't get our head around either. And there's going to be even more of that in the future as people try and work out how to add new layers of governance and cooperation onto this fast-growing but geopolitically complicated region. Don't, don't you, James, join me in lamenting being old enough to remember Madeleine Albright convening alli the Alliance of Democracies as far back as almost 30 years ago. I can remember this. And and of course, the, the next iteration is not going to have any better an outcome given the nuances in governance and vocabulary and nomenclature <laughs> here in this region. But what it does ultimately come down to is de-risking, right? You can have all of the frameworks on paper that you want, but at the end of the day, if you're not de-risking investment for the you know allied countries to be competing uh, with China in these marketplaces, or even doing it for the benefit of their own economies and exporting, obviously, their own corporate entities, which is really what this is about for them, is export stimulus and export credit. If that de-risking doesn't happen, it's all just talk. Right. And so that's why James is absolutely right. It's going to be a big, confused hodgepodge. But guess what? That's what Asian regional governance is, because there isn't um, necessarily one, you know, again, there is a most powerful state in Asia, no question, but there isn't one rule book. And that's the kind of jujitsu, I think, that's going on all the time here in this region. And it's part of what muddies the waters enough to prevent there from being uh, one hegemonic uh, power. And it, it creates opportunities for the US to stay in the game and for Europe to, you know, sort of stick itself out there more as it's uh, trying to do and creates that space for India to rise up gradually and also become more competitive as a, you know, you could call it a global goods kind of provider because, you know, India now will start to export its own, you know, technological goods. It may not be 5G hardware, but certainly low-cost telecommunication services and also AI as a service, right? You know, the re one of the reasons so many American tech companies are making huge investments in India in their software uh, industry and AI is be that becomes now an exportable service. So are we really going to be in a global duopoly or new Cold War in the future, I, I actually highly doubt it. I think it'll be a much more nuanced, layered, textured, competitive marketplace. And that should probably, that that's almost a best case outcome because it certainly beats the sort of Manichaean, you know, new Cold War kind of uh, framework that lasts indefinitely and could surely bring ruin at any point in time. We're not going to have a duopoly, but we do have two powers, US and China, and that do have some tensions between them, whether we're talking about technology, whether we're talking about trade, whether we're talking about military. Let's spend a couple of minutes on that. What, what are some of the things to look out for in the next few years when it comes to the US-China relations and some of those tensions? So, this is obviously very complicated. We have Biden. We think that he is more likely, or I think he's more likely at least to be a bit more predictable and traditional in the way that he's going to try and handle China. So looked at from the US Chinese side. And therefore, I think you're going to see less intemperate use of tariffs, fewer temper tantrums, fewer, you know, random acts of geopolitical oddness, like the summit with North Korea that have this destabilizing effect. Biden's going to turn up in Asia more often. It's, it's not going to be a return to the status quo ante for all the reasons we've discussed discussed in the conversation, but it's going to look a bit more like what we're used to. One thing that I would point to, however, though, that I spent quite a lot of time this year following the story about TikTok, which to some degree seems less serious than, for instance, Huawei, because TikTok is a, you know, it's a social media platform designed for teenagers. But what was interesting about TikTok was despite the fact that it was a social media platform designed for teenagers, the Washington security establishment said this is a national security threat. And so I think what you take out of that is if TikTok is a national security threat, and you can argue the toss about whether that is or isn't accurate because other countries like Australia looked at TikTok and said it isn't a national security threat, but the Americans decided that it was. On the Chinese side, we were talking a little bit earlier about the new Chinese theory of dual circulation. And without getting into all of the details of what that means, what that means is the decision makers in Beijing have basically looked at the last four years under Trump and they have decided it is very likely that the US is going to try to deny us access to advanced technology of all sorts, not just semiconductors, which has been the kind of the tip of the spear, but everything else as well. They, they think that the US is going to try and contain China by denying it access to advanced technology. And I'm not entirely sure if they're wrong about that. If you look at the, the play, the way the US has behaved over the last four years, then it, it's hard not to jump to that conclusion. And the US may change its behavior or moderate it under Biden. But so you have 
on both sides a real change in perspective. The US, which used to be the guardian of globalization, is now much more concerned about security in various different respects. And I think that will continue in an important degree under Biden. And China has basically decided that the US has it in for them with reasonable reason for thinking that. And so under those circumstances, it's very difficult, I think, to imagine a, a kind of world in which the US and China start kind of cooperating with one again. It's not impossible that you have a Henry Kissinger moment in which they decide to come to some sort of detente. And, but I think that the likelihood of that is reasonably small. And so what you're going to see is a relationship between the US and China, which is much more about competition than cooperation in almost all respects, potentially with the, the caveat of climate, which we'll get to. There's other factors that make it uh, far more complicated, again, than just a, even if people want to modify Cold War with you know, new tech Cold War, as if, again, that were a duopoly. It's really not, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that if you look at the uh, contrasting approaches to regulation, you know, of the global marketplace there, it's there aren't really two models, but quite a few, you know, and again, the European approach to regulating or, you know, trying to limit the advance of technology monopolies is absolutely critical in all of this, because you're not really a global tech monopoly if Europe doesn't let you be one. You know, that that's extremely important. And that's kind of what's happening right now. And the other is that all of this presumes a certain linear behavior of Chinese firms, those that are considered suspicious by the US, which is obviously quite a few, because they also change their character. And what we see is a willingness of whether it's a ByteDance or Alibaba, Alibaba certainly being, you know, the original adapter, the global Chinese company that again, adapts itself to local rules and regulations, and it allows, you know, foreign payment systems onto its platform and enables their access into the Chinese market becomes something of a template for for those Chinese companies that do face a very high degree of scrutiny. So you'll also have a morphing of what China Inc. and chi global Chinese companies looks like, look like in the coming years. And they could start to look more like Alibaba, in which case it becomes a lot harder for the U.S. to you know, portray them as national security threats because they're going to, again, become more localized entities and play by local rules and create local boards and this kind of thing. And this is already what has been mooted in terms of how the what the end game for ByteDance is, for example. So again, we're dealing with a lot of shifting targets here rather than just this notion that, you know, there's two sources and geographies of invention, innovation, productization and commercialization, and they compete for the world. The real world doesn't, doesn't actually look like that. You know, you definitely have only within China is it clear that there is a monopoly right over the marketplace. So that's interesting. In our last little disagreement, Parag was being pessimistic and I was being optimistic. I think now Parag is being optimistic because I think it's quite likely to go the other way in as much as the parts of the Chinese private sector that look different from the bits the US are worried about are, are going to find that their wings are going to be clipped. So just as we were all obsessing about the US presidential election, on the same day, you had this extraordinary episode in which the Chinese financial regulator canned the Ant Group IPO with, you know, two hours on the clock. And the reason for that, there's all sorts of speculation, but the, the sort of basic top line reason is that the Chinese state is not comfortable with these leading lights of the technology revolution being effectively like American or European firms, private sector-led, private sector values, and they are going to be brought back under control. Control, or at least there's going to be a battle to bring them back under control. So Ant Group, which is an affiliate of Alibaba, founded by Jack Ma, does banking, financial services, and a gazillion other things as well, has basically been wrapped over the knuckles and said, you know, you are going to come back into the fold. And so this, the reason why this is interesting is... I think it's much less likely that you're going to see, in a sense, more Chinese companies becoming like Alibaba and therefore becoming less suspicious to outsiders because they look like normal global corporations. I think it's likely to go the other way, which is that the few Chinese companies that look like that are going to be brought back closer into the state system. And that, in a sense, is what this idea of dual circulation is about. It's about the state reestablishing control and direction over the development of an indigenous Chinese technological ecosystem, a plan B for the moment if and when the Americans and all of their friends decide to cut China out of the loop. And that might happen 
happen if China begins to start pushing at Taiwan, for instance. There's a, there might be a geopolitical angle for that, or it might just be that looked at from Beijing. You know, when we, so I'm Westerner, you're a Westerner, Parag has a multicultural heritage, but when we look at China, I think that there's a tendency to think, oh my goodness, you know, there's this new hegemon rising which is going to disturb our world. But looked at from Beijing, life seems pretty lonely, you know, because America still has all of its alliances, it's got all of its friends, it's got Europe, and actually China really feels like it's being picked on by by this vast array of other countries. And and so, in, in a sense, preparing for a world in which there's a sort of famous British slogan which is ascribed to an unpopular football club and which goes, everybody hates us and we don't care. And there's a certain kind of everybody hates us and we don't care attitude coming out of Beijing, the attitude of the wolf warrior diplomacy that you see. And, and so that, I think, is... is it's more likely that you're going to see the Chinese economy developing in a way that will make the Americans and others suspicious than it is to happen the other way around. The dual circulation is winds up being a very good metaphor for this because it shows that we're more or less saying the same thing. Again, within China and financial, Alibaba are going to play by the strong the rules of the strong arm of the state. But abroad, if China genuinely wants to provide or be the platform provider for as many societies, economies, and states, and you know. I don't want to say allies because China doesn't have allies per se as possible, whether it is satellite, their satellite system. Now, there they've gotten away, if you will, with more or less being a standard setter for a whole range of countries because you're talking about um, a set of technologies where there hasn't been as much competition against what China is doing. But if China genuinely wants the Alibabas and ByteDances and financials and other, again, platform types of companies, WeChats and so forth, to become global standards and platforms to extend. Chinese influence in that dual circulation spirit, it's going to have to actually allow for some degree of convergence, harmonization with international standards and rules. And the same thing will happen with 5G. You know, again, Huawei was part of the original creation of 5G standards. And now there are strong advocates that if China, again, want, if, if China wants Huawei, even though it doesn't care what anyone thinks about it, so to speak, right? But if it wants to grow economically and internationalize its platform companies, it's going to have to be accommodating. And that is, is compatible with dual circulation. I, I think that's a really interesting point. And the kind of the, the notion of China as a platform provider is I think a reason to be optimistic if you are on the, the kind of the Western side of this thing, because China has been quite successful in some sense in projecting itself globally as a standard setter. If you look at something like high voltage power equipment or train design, China's very good. You look at the Belt and Road Initiative, it has built an amazing platform for infrastructure investment, although a very problematic one. Its 5G technology is clearly going to be far in advance of anything the West can manage, as is true with payments, but really only with within China, it has not been very successful and continues not to be successful at exporting that, you know, nobody nobody outside of the immediate Chinese language Sinosphere uses WeChat, everybody uses WhatsApp. It's unclear, it doesn't look like China is going to be the 5G standard setter. That has been a, a victory for the US, albeit a bloody one, that Huawei will be used in poorer parts of the emerging world, but not much of the rich world, and it's the rich world that matters from an economic point of view. So there are two interesting questions here. Under Biden, can the US get its mojo back in its own old role of being the number one place where we set these standards, we figure out how the world runs, and the US, even if it's not always the top dog, is a very important voice at that table. Open question. Second open question is, can China, given the way the world is going, can it began to play that role more skillfully? If you look at the evidence of the pandemic, I'd say it's reasonably mixed. I, I don't see, despite all of China's health diplomacy and the amazing record that it has had, that it has managed to tr turn that into kind of currency it can use. It hasn't managed to set up an alternative to the World Health Organization. And whether it can do is a really big question for the future. So I think China as a platform is a really good point Parag makes. So gentlemen, I'm going to pause us here. Because we simply have too much of a rich conversation. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue this in our next episode. But uh, what I want to do is I just want to end this one. Say, you know, what you've described as a complicated and nuanced, a multipolar world. I'm going to do something unusual for the two of you. I'm going to ask you for a one word answer. If you look forward globally for the world, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Optimistic.
Pessimistic. <laughs> All right. And I can see you guys both found that difficult to answer in one word. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue this conversation in our next podcast episode. So please stay tuned. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.